Now, we've been coming through Romans chapter 13, and we've seen how, uh, really, that it deals with governmental structure. I told you that Romans chapter 13 was a great chapter that talks about how uh, you and I are to relate to our government. I showed you how that the one word that really uh, puts it all together is understanding the word authority. And, uh, you know, how important that is. But at the same time, uh, and I remember I told you, I said that there's three institutions that God has set up. One of them was the family. The other one was civil government. And then the other one was the church. And I want to talk to you today about the structure of the New Testament church as far as being another form of God's government under the authority of the believer. You know, I never try to miss an opportunity to teach you uh, uh, about events that I think fit into key concepts and trying to help you understand how they fit into your life, you know, in, in Bible Christianity. You know, we saw New Year's Eve. I told you that the next eight years we were going to focus on taking this thing up to the next level and, and go through every aspect of the church. The time we're done in the next eight years through our Ironman meetings and our, and our, our prayer groups and all of the different things that we've done now to put it into play this year, um, you know, I want you to understand fully how this thing operates from every aspect of it, step by step. It's not going to just be about your walk with God. I want you to understand the inner workings of what the Bible calls the New Testament church. You know, we had over 90 people that are in our church involved, and it's obviously, you can already see it, how it's changed in just a, just a couple of weeks the complexion of our church and the people that uh, God, uh, once we kicked the door open and walked through it by faith, well, God just showered uh, the people on us and uh, in opportunities of ministry. So uh, there's two reasons for this message today. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's a great opportunity. It, uh, first, as I've already been talking about, is the, the, the level that our church has entered into. And I want to develop you through those three levels that you can begin to understand why we do what we do in the governmental structure within a church and how it affects and what it is to be the authority in our lives. The second thing is that when we end today, we're going to, we're going to perform something that the church has, given the, has been given the authority to do, and that is to ordain someone for the ministry. And I want you to understand how that operates. Greg, a uh, missionary to South America, and we want to uh, you know, recognize him, and we'll go through that process, and I want you to understand the whole concept today. And uh, this is in light, of, like I said, of what we're doing in Romans chapter 13 already. Now, let me begin by saying this. You remember a while back that a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about how all forms of government, no matter what they are, are against God in their final analysis. Remember I took you back through the book of Ecclesiastes and I showed you that from God's standpoint, capitalism is no different than communism. They all at the end of the day, they may look better because you have freedom as an American, but at the end of the day, it's the same system. All governmental systems that man comes up with, and, and there's a great verse in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, it goes along with this. It says simply this, there are many devices in a man's heart. It says there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Man is famous for coming up with ideas to get around the Bible and God. Another one in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says, there is a way that seemeth right unto men. 
but the end thereof are the ways of death. Those two verses are great verses. Because when understanding government and governmental structure, we now know that as we come through the book of Ecclesiastes, all forms of government, even ours, is for the purpose of getting around the Bible. And I told you how that everything on this planet, everything on this planet follows the concept of getting us around God, Christ, and what God wants us to do, no matter how good it looks. I told you that the model of civil government for us was the nation of Israel. God gave us a model in the Old Testament, and I, at the beginning, I showed you this. I walked you through it. I showed you the difference between a democracy and a republic. I showed you how that our founding fathers, uh, when America was established, they did it for the freedom of being able to preach and teach the Bible from oppression of a church-state setup like they had in Europe. We went through all of that. But I want you to begin to see today that in church government, it's no different than civil government. Just as man creates all of his governmental structures, no matter what it may be, communism, socialism, capitalism, fascism, you name it. Just as unsaved man or man of the world come up with their concepts of governmental structure, they do the same thing in church structure. And in church structure, you have lost men and you have saved men. And uh, in government, civil government, you have saved men, you have lost men. But the bottom line, and we've talked about this now for weeks, uh, a couple of weeks, is the aspect of having a final authority, the Bible that tells you exactly how you and I are to run and carry out the work of God within any church structure. Now, in the, in the, in the Christian world today, man has come up with five governmental structures by which churches operate. And this is important. You need to know this because when you talk with people or you hear something about a church on TV or this church or that church and why they're doing this, many times this will help you understand how it works. Out of these five, God has nothing to do with four of them. The fifth one is the one that God has set up in the New Testament. The other four are just like every civil government on this planet. They're religious governmental systems that deal with people, Christians, churches, pastors, deacons, elders, people who go to church, but they're all for the purpose of getting you around the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of them. Now, the first form of church government we're going to find, if we lay it out, will simply be called Episcopal. And uh, it's run by a headquarters with a bishop that's over the church. A bishop uh, in every church you know, but there's a head bishop someplace, and they basically have no authority to themselves. They're run by uh, some head guy someplace, and this will be your Episcopal church, Presbyterian churches, your Lutheran churches, your Methodist churches. They follow that form of governmental style, where the church really doesn't have a say in anything. The pastor they have is given to them from the Episcopal headquarters. That pastor stays there two or three years, and they move him around to another church. The people really have, the pastor has no say in anything. He's just pretty much a table setting. He pretty much is just part of the decorations. Everything is run through the bishops or the, the head bishop that tells everybody in the church uh, what to do. The next form of governance you're going to find is much similar, but it's called a presbytery. Or sometimes you find it snod, S-Y-N-O-D. Uh, a presbytery is a, is a body of elders. A snod is a group of churches that are under an elder. And you find this many times in, in church government, where, again, 
Uh, the church is run by the elders or the deacons. The pastor, again, has no say in anything. Again, they, he, a pastor is sent to that church. Church doesn't vote on getting a pastor. They have a pool, an organization, the presbytery. And that it, it gives everything that the church needs. They train up the pastors. They decide where the pastor goes. They decide how long he stays. Uh, they all have a great retirement program. They, they put them out to pasture when they're 65, 60 years old. And they live like kings the rest of their life. Great setup. The only problem is it has nothing to do with God or the Bible. And there's no real New Testament authority found anywhere in it. Well, the third type is one that we're all familiar with, and we'll call that the papal. That's the Roman Catholic Church. And that runs through a system of the Pope being the vicar of Christ. The vicar of Christ simply means that the Pope is God's replacement on this planet during this period of time. And it runs through a hierarchy from the Pope to the cardinals to the archbishop to the bishop to the priest. And it runs down the ladder from there. And, of course, we know uh, that everything runs back to Rome. Do you ever notice that you don't find uh, the term American Catholic? Uh, Catholicism is big down there where you're going, brother, and of course you know that. Do you ever find into a South American Catholic? No. You ever, didn't that ever strike you strange? You go to Europe. There's no German Catholics. There's no Russian Catholics. Wherever you find Catholics, no matter what country they live in, they're all called Roman Catholic because it all goes back to Rome. For years and years and years, you heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. And that's based on the Roman Empire back in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd century, but it's true today of the Roman Catholic Church. So you have that form of government. Then you have what we call congregational form of government. This will be local churches that, that govern themselves. Sometimes we call them independents. Uh, there's no direct outside or inside intervention. They pretty much run themselves. And uh, you're going to find that most Baptist churches fall into this category. Another group of churches that fall into this that you hear a lot about today is called the evangelical churches. We'll talk about that in a second. And these churches are not run by any organization. There's no great uh, buddy telling them what to preach, telling them what to do. They're free to pick their own pastors and set their own sermon schedules and do whatever they want to do. But they don't have the Bible as a final authority. All of these uh, churches that are connected with somehow with either a Bible college or a school of divinity. Many of you have heard the, heard the name of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary is one of the largest seminaries uh, in this country. And the Dallas Theological Seminary is run by the evangelicals. And they put out tremendous amount of young men and, and, and young ladies into the ministry. And so these churches, instead of having somebody, somebody telling them what to do, they all have their allegiance to a school. And uh, if you're an evangelical pastor, uh, what, what Mecca is to a Muslim, Dallas Theological Seminary is to an evangelical. Uh, they, they, they worship the place. They think that that's the seat of all knowledge. And there's other places, too. If you're a Baptist and you're in the what they call the BBF or the Baptist Fellowship, you're Mecca, Springfield, Missouri. If you're a group that run with Lee Robinson, then you're, you're Mecca's down there in Tennessee, Tennessee Temple. So it's a, every, these kind of churches, they don't, they're, 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 they're under themselves, but they don't use the Bible as the final authority. And what they believe and, and what shapes their teaching and their preaching comes from the theological seminaries. And that's very important. The evangelical movement starts about 1900. We're going to go through it in church history when we get to that point. 
We're right now just in 200 A.D. We'll get to 1900 probably in about six years. But the evangelical movement was, along with the Orthodox movement, or new neo-Orthodox movement, was a movement to get, put an end to the Philadelphian church age. And what the evangelicals wanted to do, they called it a reconstruction of theology. Up to that point, the Bible had been in the hands of the common man, and God was turning the world upside down with it. But the evangelical, the new evangelicals, they saw that as a disdain because they thought that true Bible knowledge had to belong with the scholars and us poor people on the bottom had to get the crumbs that they threw us. So what they started was the concept of of a reconstruction theology. All that simply means is, is they wanted to take the Bible out of your hands and put it back in the hierarchy of higher education. And they did it. It happened. That's what you've got today. So these forms of church government are man-made, have nothing to do with the Bible. They have nothing to do with God. Every one of these people, except maybe the congregational, but everybody else on the first three, and many times within the congregational group, they do not believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. They're either all-millennial or they're post-millennial. They do not believe in a literal return of Jesus Christ. And we've learned now that that's really the whole concept of everything. And then you have the fifth one. And that's the one in which the Bible is based. And that's based on a model in the Bible. And I've told you, you know, a lot this year, and you're going to hear a lot more about it, and how that my goal for you in time is for you to have a model for everything that you do in life. Right now, we have models for the major things, the life-changing things, which are vitally important, because there's some mistakes you can afford to make and get away with it. And there's other mistakes that you make it and you're done, man. You never get out from under it. So we start with understanding biblical principles, finding the models, and I've showed you many of them over the last year. I told you how that when it comes to ministry, as far as my style of ministry and building a church, I have a model for everything I do based on the Bible because I believe that the Bible is the absolute final authority for everything. I don't believe there's any truth outside the Bible. And I believe that whether it's building a church going to the mission field or coming to the place where you run your family or you just have a relationship with Christ if you're not married and you want to do it the best you can do with God. I believe it all comes down, the success or the failure, all comes down to you understanding the models that God has put in that Bible. And, uh, and so this form of church government is found in the book of Acts, chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, and all the way through the book of Acts. The model for you and for me of building a Bible-based New Testament church is the church at Antioch. You'll find in Acts chapter 11, that's where they're first called Christians at Antioch. You'll find that Antioch is the church that comes on the scene after they make the switch from the Old Testament kingdom of heaven under the nation of Israel, moving into the kingdom of God. And it's the first church that you find in the New Testament that is a Bible-based church. And they send out the first missionary teams. The Bible tells you in Acts chapter 13, it shows you the makeup. They're, they're a cosmopolitan church. They have all different races and ethnic groups within that church. There's no racists in that church. They have one goal and one purpose, and that is to carry out what God has showed them to do. And uh, when the Bible becomes your final authority, then you use the models in the Bible to build a church. When you don't, then you'll use Dallas or some synod or some presbytery, and you'll do it that way. But that's the way it has to go. 
And that's what you need to understand in those five concepts. Now, we are the fifth. We are a Bible-believing church that nobody tells us what to do except the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible. Everything we do, we base it on the models in the New Testament. You've heard me say it many, many times that I try to keep this church as close to the New Testament structure uh, as I can. And I want you to understand now for a moment, now that we've laid those five out, let me help you understand how the structure of the church works. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now look at chapter 4, verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Here we go. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Talking about Christ. Now that he ascended, what is it but he that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Talking about Christ going down to the Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom. He that descended is the same that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fulfill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, look at the next verse. Now, here's the threefold work of the church. This is the basic threefold work of the church. Whenever you look at the church and what it's supposed to be, and you get the model for it, here's the model of what it's supposed to do. Now watch, three things. One, perfecting the saints. Two, for the work of the ministry. Three, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now I told you that I operate with a model for everything I do. Do you see ourselves in those three things? First one says, for the perfecting of the saints. I talked about on our, on our, on our Iron Man uh, prayer uh, groups, men and women. I told you both the same thing. That Christian life is a constant process of you and me redefining ourselves. When you come into this church, you come in with an attitude of where you're at, an understanding of maybe the problems in your life, and you begin a process of redefining. That redefining is your spiritual growth. There should never be a time or a place in your life, I don't care if you're saved for 150 years, there should never be a time in your Christian life where you are not in a constant state of redefining who you are in Christ. That's your spiritual growth. You see, that's what I've worked on the last six and a half years. That was my model. That was my plan. Because to get you to the next level, I had to get you to the point where you were something to work with. And you all come in with a zero on your back, not knowing much about the Bible. But through the process of four or five years, some of you have made incredible process uh, you know, in the last two years. Some of you have made incredible process in the last six months. I can't wait to see you when you're around here for a year and a half someplace. But what you have to do and what we had to start with, and I preached, this, preached these things, uh, put, I just nailed you from every aspect on Thursday night, on Sunday morning, in our one-on-ones. Why? Because I understood that spiritual growth just doesn't happen. You don't just get saved, walk around for five or ten years, and suddenly God got your name on a big clipboard up in heaven, and uh, he gets around to your name. And while you sleep at night, the angels of God come down and roll off the roof of the house, and he backs the big spiritual jump truck up of spiritual knowledge, and like fairy dust or pixie dust, it comes down and gets all over you, and you wake up in the morning, and now you know the Bible. I wish it worked that way. 
But God don't have enough dump trucks and we don't have enough pixie dust, so that ain't going to work. But the bottom line, it doesn't work that way. It works by every day of your life. Every day of your life, you and me redefining ourselves as we grow, looking at what we can fix, looking at what, keeping ourselves accountable to who we are. And that's what the Bible calls perfecting the saints. It's not talking about being sinlessly perfect. You and I will never be sinlessly perfect. So when it talks about the perfecting of the saints, it's not talking about you becoming perfect where you don't sin. Look at the next part. The perfecting of the saints has to do with the work of the ministry. He wants to perfect you and I, not to the place of sinless perfection, though we ought to get as close to it as we can. But the perfecting of the saints is for the job that God's got you to do. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the work of the ministry is really the only reason you should be here today. I don't know if that bombshell has hit you yet, but I don't know why other reason you'd be here. The reason why God set up the structure of a New Testament church was only for three things, that you could get perfected, and then at some point in your life, as you go up through those levels of redefining yourself, you find yourself ready for the work of the ministry. That's what God has called this church to do. We're not a social club. We have a lot of fun. Had a great time at the hockey game. Some good fights broke out. One guy got thrown through the glass. Uh, the guy next to me got hit in the face with a puck. And you know what? They sang that song. You know how they do the song? Oh, I got to tell you. They sang that song. YMCA. You know how that song goes? And it just so happened that I had a T-shirt on underneath my jacket that had YMCA on it. So I get into the spirit. I took my jacket off and I'm flashing my YMCA and there on the big screen, there I am. I'm famous. <laughs> I had nine people come up afterwards, thought I was Brad Pitts. What am I? I said, I'm not him. I'm not him at all. For the perfecting of the saints. See? For the work of the ministry. God saved you to perfect yourself. So you, and, 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 and maybe you're just a young Christian that just got saved. So we'll cut you some slack. But the bottom line is, in reality, you should be here this morning for one reason. I don't know what your reason is. But you ought to be here for one reason this morning. And that is to get ready for the work of the ministry. And then the last thing he says, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, that's what we're doing right now through our prayer teams, our Iron Man teams. Iron sharpeneth iron. What you're doing is edifying each other. You're helping each other, encouraging each other. Uh, all week long, I, you know, I hear studies, and we're, Bob's keeping a track on it for me, and we talk, people talk to me about, and I saw you, you know, I... I, I, I Chris and I were talking this morning, and I said, it, we, it got to be about 20 after, and I thought, man, you know, where's everybody at? And then he, he reminded me, that they're, Bob, they're all through this church praying. And I said, I for, that's exactly right. I forgot that. I forgot that. Edifying in the body of Christ. Now, watch how this order of New Testament church structures itself out. Watch this development. Go back to verse 8 and 9. He says, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first in the lower parts of the earth? All right, verse 8 and 9, as I told you already, that's the resurrection of the Old Testament saints when Christ comes up from the dead. Now watch, verse 10. Verse 10. 
and he that descended is the same that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things. All right, that's Acts chapter 1 and 2 when he goes back to heaven. Okay, follow right through with it. Now look at verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now look at the order of that. First thing he says in verse 11 is apostles. That'd be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and bring you up to Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 7. The next thing he says is prophets. You'll find those in Acts chapter 11. The next thing he says, evangelists. That'll be Philip and Paul, see? And then he says the next thing, pastors and teachers. That'll be Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. See how the thing works? And so the final aspect of the church is pastors and teachers. Now, did you notice that there's no comma between pastors and teachers? Did you notice when it says apostles, there was a comma? When he said uh, 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 prophets, there was a comma? And when he said uh, evangelist, there was a comma. Notice there's no comma after pastors and teachers. You know why? Talking about the same thing. A pastor should be a teacher. So there's no comma between the two. It's not two different things. It's a pastor. It needs to teach. You know what he needs to teach his people? The perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's what we're doing. Now, just as there is an authority structure within civil government, and this is what I want to focus on today, there's also one within the church. I want you to leave today to understanding how this church, a biblical New Testament church, should work and all of the insides of it because of the fact that all of you almost, 90 of you anyhow, are involved in our prayer groups and you can now begin to learn how this system works to get you where it needs to be. And I, I told you, you know, the definition of a church is really simple. I, I, I told you when we started, uh, our, when our first meetings with the men and the women, uh, that it's the structure that God has replaced himself with uh, for our accountability. Do you realize that when, when God went, Christ went back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, he'd been on this earth giving direction to the 12 apostles, everybody saw him, but when he died on the cross and he died and was buried and he rose again, he stays on this earth for uh, a number of days and then in Acts chapter 1 and 2, he goes back to heaven and he sets things in, in play. Did you ever notice when Christ went back to heaven, he replaced himself with three things? The first thing he replaced himself with was the Holy Spirit of God because in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit of God comes. Had never been here before. The second thing he replaced himself with was the Word of God. By 90 AD, the Bible is complete. John finishes up his books, and now God's people have a complete revelation of the mind of God. That was the second thing he gave. And the third thing that he gave then was the concept of the church. I always look at it this way for my own self. The Bible is your roadmap. The Holy Spirit of God is the guide that shows you where God wants you to go. And the church is the vehicle by which you get there. To me, it's just that simple. I know that the church, when God gave us the church, he did it. And he replaced himself with the church for our accountability. Remember, I gave you one of the principles in ministry uh, over our shadow meeting. I laid out this out and showed you why people leave churches and quit going to churches. It's a science unto itself. And many times, you know, uh, you, you don't know all, and I, I've told you before, there's many goofy churches out there that people ought to leave. But you take a Bible-based New Testament church that's preaching and teaching the Word of God. Uh, and I, I, I began to show you because these are things you need to understand. Why people leave and quit going to a church? Well, it's real simple. First of all, the Bible's light. The Bible says that the entrance of thy word giveth light. The Bible says the word of God is what? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path in the book of Psalms. Now, we all have dark areas in our lives. 
We like to pretend we don't, but we all do. And in our life, we have, uh, when, when, when you get shaved and you begin to grow, there's things in your life and my life that, that we haven't maybe dealt with yet. Maybe we want to deal with them. Everybody's different. Maybe we want to deal with them, but we just don't have it there to get it together yet. Or and sometimes, maybe we really don't want to deal with it. If I've learned anything about God's people in the 40 years I've been in ministry, it's the fact that God's people saved on their way to heaven will harbor things in their life and keep them as far out here as they can from God and really think that they can do that and still have some kind of relationship with God. And I'm not talking about young Christians that just get saved and start to struggle with things that they want to get. I'm talking about God's people saved 5, 10, 15 years. And I've seen it all my life. And, you know, the Bible is light. And because the Bible is light, uh, when that light shows up in our lives, it reveals to us things that maybe we don't want to deal with. And through the process that we have to keep ourselves accountable to it. Let me ask you a question. And you know this is true. We've all been out of fellowship before. At some point in your life. Let me ask you a question. So you can all relate to this. When you start to get out of fellowship, you know, when you lose the edge and you start to get to the point where, you know, uh, uh, you, know you, you know something's pulling you back or you got an issue and you don't do with it biblically what you sh- should and the devil starts to take the thing and work on you, you know as well as I do. The first thing that goes in your life is you reading the Bible. Do you know why that is? I mean, this is 101, why people leave churches. Because the Bible keeps you accountable. Now, I've never found a problem in my life where what you had with somebody else or somebody has with you or whatever, that you can't fix that in 30 seconds by doing what the Bible says. You see? But we don't do that, do we? The first thing we do is we stop reading the Bible. You know why? Because in the book of James chapter 1, the Bible says the Word of God is like a man looking into a looking glass. Remember the old fairy tale, the old story, a mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And that old witch would look into that and the mirror would come back and say, not you, sweetheart. Was it Cinderella? Snow White? Was it Snow White? Yeah, all right. I can't keep up with them up. And, and, and that's what we do. The Bible says when we read the Bible, it's like a man beholding his natural face. Now, I don't want to say this, and I'm not being crude this morning, and I don't want to, uh, and please don't take offense to this, but you know, we don't look right now like we did when we got up this morning. Now, that's a good thing. Michael just leaned over, who just newly married, and said, Amen. When I grew up, women used to roll their hair in pop cans. Remember those big rollers? They don't do that anymore. I remember growing up, I, I watched my mom and my sister coming up in the morning and it, with those big cans. I looked like a 20-watt radio station, man. I, I, you know, I, they, could, uh, they could attract satellites with it. My point being, we all fix ourselves up so when we go out in public, we don't look as bad as we really do. Do you realize we do that as Christians too? You know what the Bible does? The Bible, when you get into the Bible, it strips off all the makeup and all the hair gel you put on and all the things you put in your life to make you look good. It strips you down and you've got to look at yourself just like you really are. And you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. Is there anybody here like that? I mean, I, I, it's a thing where it, but that's what the Bible does. So the minute a man and a woman starts to get out of fellowship with God, the first thing it goes is reading their Bible. 
You know what the second thing is goes? You see, the Bible will hold you accountable. You'll read it. I, I tell you this all the time. The Bible is the only book in the world. When you start reading it, it starts reading you. And you'll try to read something, and the Holy Spirit of God will say, well, what about this? You'll say, well, don't bother right now. He said, no, we need to talk about that. And you just, and so what you do, you quit reading it. Why? Because it holds you accountable. You know the next thing it'll go? You won't go to church anymore. Or you'll start missing. You know why? Because the church structure, like the Word of God, is a structure that holds you accountable. Now, the ministry in preaching, you have to say some hard things. You have to preach on sin, you have to preach on this, you have to preach on that. You know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says that he that loveth a honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. I mean, I love getting dressed down preaching. I love somebody just getting in my face and stomping me. You know why? Because I need it. I've always used this as a great example. And to me, this is a great example. Let's say you were out and you down in the Ozark someplace and you found a big cave. And it was a cave that nobody ever explored before. So you parked your car out front, you know, and, and you walk into this cave and you, it's dark and you got a little flashlight and you're finding your way down through it and you're just having a time of your life. You get in there about, oh, I don't know, you're in there for about 45 minutes and you've taken turns here and went up levels here and crawled under this and got around this and suddenly you're in there really good and far and your light goes out. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a cave where, when, but when the lights go out, brother, the lights go out. Uh, you can't find your way out. And you know what? You can't feel your way out. And there's no light in there at all. And, and suddenly you're, 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 trying to, you're trying to file your way out of that thing. And you're going along the wall. And then you find a turn. You can't remember which way you go. So you try this one. You've been in there for eight or nine hours now trying to find your out. Luckily for you, the uh, park ranger run by and saw your car there. And, and, and it had been there for a long time. And so what does he do? They organize a rescue party. And so you're trapped in there. Now, take this. Think about being trapped in that dark cave like you were trapped in the sin and the ungodliness in your life before you got saved. And then suddenly, you see way off down there a light. And in this complete darkness that you've been paranoid and you're scared and you're cold and you're hungry, you look down there and what do you see? You see a light coming your way. You know what you're going to do? You're going to start moving toward that light. The light now is a point of reference of you being saved from that cave. Now, let's put another scenario. You just robbed a bank, just killed somebody, and the cops are on your tail. You dive around the thing and park in the back, and you see a cave, and you hide in that cave. Sheriff Department sees your tire marks, and they get a posse together, and they start coming in the cave to get you, and you're back, way back in the cave, and you see the light. You know what you're going to do? You're going to start moving farther back in the cave to get away from the light because you don't want to get caught. Now, folks, that's the way it is in Christianity. We all live in a cave with darkness, and when the man in the pulpit or the Word of God, you're reading it, shows the light on it, you do one of two things. You either move toward the light because you want to get past it, or you go farther back in the cave because you don't want to stop it. See, that's easy to me. I mean, I get that. That's, that's so simple. Look at Matthew chapter 13. I'll give you a great story on this. This is one of my favorite stories because it fits me so well. Matthew chapter 13. 
You see, you hear me say this all the time. People want to go to church. People want to hear a message. I never, I never, never met anybody in my life that ever went to church that didn't go to hear what the guy had to say. You go to church and you'll hear the message, but what you don't like, you don't. You want a message, but you don't want any conviction out of the message. Okay? Or you'll go to church, but you don't want any accountability in the church. That's where it starts, you see. Now watch this. This is one of the greatest parables anywhere in the Bible, and I know it's dealing with the nation of Israel, but the parallel is to you and me. Call the parable to sower. Matthew chapter 13, verse 3. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came up and devoured them. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, and because they had no deepness of earth, and when the sun was up, they were scorched, because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. Others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Now, I want to talk to you here, and I want, I, want, I want you to see this. Now, this parable is laid out in the first, uh, in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, but it's answered in verse 18 of the same chapter, and this is where it gets really good. Watch this, verse 18. Now, hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. He just gave you the parable, now he's going to explain it to you. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is which uh, he which is re- uh, received seed by the wayside. Now, the first thing we hear here is a guy who comes to church, and uh, he's, he, he's, he's careless about it. He's really not interested in the Bible. And this is why so many people come to church, but they really never get anything out of it. I've known people that have read their Bibles, and I, and, and I don't, this is the only explanation. I've seen them come to Thursday night, I've come to Sunday morning, I've seen them taking notes, but the bottom line is, it never gets translated into their lifestyle. What they know about the Bible doesn't get into their life, it stays in their notebook. I've even seen them put notes in their Bible, but they can't get it from the Bible into their own life. They got it in the Bible, but they can't walk in their life what they have written down in the Bible. You know why? Somebody takes it out of your heart. The wicked one, likened to the fowls of the air. The Bible says the wicked one comes down and he, he takes those things out of your heart. Because you allow things into your life that get contradictive to what the Bible says. And I'm telling you, you know what? The devil understands the plan of the church and God's plan for you better than you do, better than I do. And he knows that if he can get your affection, your attention on something else, and you simply, you'll come to church, but you're not going to take what you learn and let it change your life. You ain't going anywhere. You ain't going anywhere at all. Now look at the next one. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon, anon means right now, uh, with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath no root in himself, but dureth for a while, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, uh, by and by, he is offended. Boy, I've seen those kind of people all my life. Notice it talks about a stony place. You know what that is? 
That's your heart. You're not 100% given over to what God wants you to do. You got things in there that you're going to hang on to, that you're not going to get rid of, and then you scratch your head and wonder why your life is upside down. He hurries and he hears the word and he has with joy in receiving it, but the problem is he doesn't get his roots down. He doesn't take what he's getting out of the Bible and apply it to their own life in an everyday scenario where you have to take. And I told you many, many times, reading the Bible, studying the Bible will not solve your problems. It's taking what you study, what you read and applying it to your life, lining your life up with the models and do not vary off of that model. But there's no root. There's no root. And so what happens? Tribulation or persecution become because of the word. And what happens? They get offended. They get mad. Somebody says something to them. They hear a message and they don't like it. They get out of fellowship and they don't like to be corrected because they're past the point of submitting to an authority. So they get offended. Bottom line is, was the stoniness of their heart. You realize that the job of this church, now we've had a lot of nice people saved. Now we get people saved all the time and I've watched God transform your lives. And when, when you see that sometimes, you get the, tend to, uh, get the thinking that the job of the church is to, is to save people. Or the job of the church may be to help you with your marriage or help you become a better Christian or get you to level one, two, and three. And I'm not saying that the church shouldn't be doing that, but that's not the job of the church first and foremost. You've got to understand, what you're reading here in chapter 13 is the process by which all churches' ministries operate. The job of the church is not to save you, though you will obviously get saved. The job of the church is not to help you have a better marriage, though it will obviously do that. The job of the church, my friend, is simply to preach truth in all areas. I can buy a kid a book, but that's not going to make him read if somebody does not inspire him to read it. I could buy you a $50 million grand piano. That doesn't make you a musician unless you take the time to learn how to play the piano. You know what? I can have 500,000 people in your, in, to put him in your life. But if you're not willing to take the truth that is put out and put it into your life, what am I going to do about it? And this is what you've got. This is why people leave churches. They don't want to be accountable. Or they become accountable, but as they go up those levels that we talked about at some point, the accountability becomes too much. And then look at the last one. Verse 22, he also received seed among the thorns. And this is that heareth the words and the care of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. See that thing? There's somebody who cared more for the world than they think do for the things of God. You see that all the time today. Oh, but look at the last one. Now, does this look familiar? Watch this. But he that receives seed into the good ground. You know what? And that's the process for the church. 
I have one job. You know what it is? It's to put out the truth like a man throwing seeds. I have no more, I have no more power over where the word of God lands than a man up here with a handful of seeds throwing them out to the crowd. I can't direct where my words go and my message anymore than Johnny Appleseed can. He takes a handful of seeds and throws it up in the air. It gets over everybody. The wind carries it 200 yards down the road. I have no more no more direction over my ministry of what the words do in your life than a man does throwing out the seed. The job of this church is to put out truth, and then it's your responsibility and your job to take that truth and do something with it or say no thanks. That's simple. It's just that simple. My job is to put out the word of God, put out the truth, let the seeds go wherever they go. And you know what? In time, when it begins to grow up, I just look for the good ground. I can't be responsible for the stony places in your heart. You want to blame me for them, but I'm really not. I can't be responsible for the fact that you care for the world more than you do, God. You'd like me to be responsible for that so you can blame it on me, but I'm really not. I'm responsible for one thing, and that is to put out the truth like a man throws the seed, and when, when the seed comes up or it doesn't come up, I simply am looking for the seed that hits the good ground. And that's what I work with. You'll never build a church with the first three. You'll only build a church with the last one. And notice what it said. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Wow. Wow, Bob, you're really smart. Yes, I am. You're really intuitive. I don't know what that means, but yes, I am. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Wow. Level one, 30-fold. Level two, 60-fold. Level three, 100-fold. Some of you are on level one right now, and God's already blessing your life. You're already bearing fruit. Some of you at the 60 le- second level, you're all, because the Word of God got on good ground, not because you happened to come on a Sunday morning when I preached a really good message and so-and-so came on a Sunday morning when I didn't preach a really good message. It's about truth and how you let it impact your life. And it, it's like sowing the seed. And this is why people leave churches. This is what, because the church structure on its own is for your and my accountability. We have to be accountable. And some people don't like to be accountable. Over the years, I've determined that most of God's people, they live on an island called denial that is surrounded by a sea called reality. And they never understand what really is going on because their world is in such a fairy tale state. And it all comes back because of the fact that they won't, they won't, uh, they won't submit themselves uh, to the authority of the Word of God and the local church because that's what God has given us the structure for. Okay, civil government has laws, ordinances, structures, commands, principles, and precepts. You submit to that authority or you get busted. You drive 80 and a 55, you get busted. You don't have a seatbelt on, you get busted. You get a DWI, get caught, you get busted. You get caught with drug possession, you go to jail. You rob a bank, you go to jail. Everything that you do, there's authority in civil government. And if you don't follow that authority... I know a pastor right now, his name is Greg Dixon, and I haven't heard much about him for the last 15 years, 10 years. Last time I heard, Greg Dixon was the guy who came up with the idea that it was unconstitutional for you to pay your taxes. 
He found a loophole in the Constitution that he was just surely was going to prove the fact that he didn't have to pay his taxes. He spent the last five, six years of his ministry, and that's pretty good because he never was a very good preacher anyhow, but he spent the last five or six years of his ministry going around to churches, trying to get pastors and people in their churches to stand up against our government because of the fact that uh, uh, it was against the Constitution to pay taxes. He was in Leavenworth the last time I heard of him. You know what he was there for? Not paying his taxes. There's laws that we have. It doesn't mean I like them. It doesn't mean I care for them at all. But I realize that there has to be in civil government, there has to be an authority structure. I think, remember when they put the speed limit to 55 miles an hour nationwide? I think that was the most stupidest thing in the world. They said, what are we going to do with the saved life? We got too many people here anyhow now. It'll save gas. The only, you just get the gas in Congress and the Senate and the President, you'll have enough gas for the world. I guarantee you. And you know what? It was a stupid thing. And then we come back and we repeal it. We do dumb things like that, and, we, we, and, and they're ridiculous. But you know what? It's the law of the land. And you have to follow it, or you, you pay the consequences. Civil government has its laws. God's government within the church also has laws, ordinances, statutes, commandments, principles, and precepts. For every violated principle that you and I violate, there's a consequence to it. Just that simple. You know, I think that um, the greatest example of this, and somebody says, why does so-and-so get away with it for four, five, six, seven, eight years, or seemingly, and uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, blam, it all comes down. They lose their job, or they do this, or something happens here, or something happens that, or they get turned upside down, or they get worse than that, they get in a car crash someplace. Why why does God let that thing go on for so long? Well, let me put it in a thing. It's the same way as civil government. When a police officer stops you, And he says, can he see your license? He wants to validate that you have a license. But you know what he does then? He goes back to his car, gets on a radio, and calls you in. You know why? Why, Joe? Tell him. It's on a record they have. It's on a record they have or if they have any outstanding what? Warrants. How many times has the cop pulled somebody over on a normal traffic stop? No big deal. Guy didn't turn his turn signal on. Guy didn't come to a complete stop. So the cop pulls him over. In his mind... I'm going to give him a warning. But a cop is trained that, you know what? Always look for the inevitable. So what he does, he says, may I see your driver's license? I'll be back in just a moment. He gets on the radio and calls this guy in. This guy's got 25 outstanding warrants on him. Now, those warrants probably go back five or six years. My problem, The bottom line is this. It's going to catch up to you sooner or later. Some of God's people have a lot of warrants out from them from God. And God, just like when you fail to appear in court, they don't send a SWAT team to get you unless you're somebody really important. They just put out a warrant for your arrest. It goes through the system and goes up on the computer. They don't send anybody out to find you. They don't call the dogs out on you. You know why? They understand that sooner or later they're going to run into you, and when they do, they're going to get you. That's the way God works. That's why God doesn't come down and whack you for every stupid thing we do. Because God gives you time. He gives you space, just like the civil government gives you time to go in and take care of your warrants. 
How many times has an officer said, the guy said, well, you got hey, if you'd have taken care of the warrant, it would have taken you 15 minutes and you'd have been out of there. Now, you know what? You're going to have to go through all of these different hoops to get through. And once the system gets you, the system got you. See, God's system's the same way. He gave you 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You can take care of your outstanding warrants right now. But if you think you're going to get away with it, wait till he pulls you over. It'll be the angel with a big red helmet on with a big white motorcycle. I learned a long time ago, bro, you can push me off and you can pull me away and say, I don't know what I'm talking about, but let me talk to you. God's got a wrench that'll fend in the nut in this world. I've seen guys over the years that I've preached to, the real tough guys and tough gals that thought they'd get around God, and they turned off my sermon and walked away from it and said, I don't need that. Let me tell you something. God gets you pinned under a car at 3 o'clock in the morning, kid. You'll hear the rest of the message. Loud and clear. God puts that little baby in the hospital or takes that little baby from you or splits up your family and you lose your wife or you lose your husband. You'll hear it. You'll hear it. There are some people you don't get around. You don't get around Jesus Christ one way or the other. When there's a warrant out on you, you better take care of it now. Take care of it now. In both cases, you can run, but you can't hide. Now, the church also has within itself a structure of leadership, uh, just like civil government. God and the Bible are the ultimate authority. We know that. And then God, through the Bible, gives the authority to the church. In the church, there's a pastor, and then there's elders, and then there's deacons. Now, the only two offices in the church are pastor and deacons. You'll find those addressed in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. There's only two offices in the church. It's a pastor and deacon. An elder, as we know, is a leader who helps the pastor, uh, male or female, but it's not an official office in the church. Not like There are no women deacons. There are no women pastors because that's an office in the church. But there are women elders addressed in the Bible because that's not a position. That's a spiritual place in your life of helping the pastor teach and train people in the Bible. Now, the New Testament model for a pastor is, is not Paul. Most people think it is. It's not. The New Testament model for a pastor is threefold. Paul's an elder. And Paul's an evangelist, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, but he's not a pastor. So he's not the model. If some of you young men want to be a pastor someday, or if you want to attain pastor-like qualities where you can really minister to people, you don't have to pastor a church to be a pastor. You can work right here with me and uh, on my level and do what I do, but uh, you don't want to study Paul. Now, Paul's a great study, but not if you want to be a pastor. You want to study three men in your Bible. You want to study Timothy, Philemon and Titus. In 1 Timothy, you find 12 charges that Paul lays out to young Timothy about being a pastor. 12 charges. And those are 12 things you better learn if you're going to be a pastor. When you get into 2 Timothy, he talks the most important thing that you as a young pastor need to have and understand. Sound doctrine. When he gets into Titus, the theme of Titus is stewardship because you are a steward of God's ministry. And when you get into Philemon, Philemon's a story about a runaway slave And uh, in that one, you learn the attitude of ministry, and that is to be a servant. And those are your pastors, models in the Bible. God established, and and this is how it works. First of all, the church should be absolutely free of of, of politics and favoritism. Everybody in a church ought to get to wherever they go on their own merits of what they do with God and the Bible. Everybody ought to be treated the same. Ought to be no politics. Money or how much money you got should never come into it. Uh, it should be simply based on absolutely free of politics and favoritism. But here's how it works. God establishes the concept of the church. That'd be the book of Acts. 
He calls a man to be a pastor, whoever that may be. God gives him the burden and God gives him the vision. God sends him people. The pastor lays out his vision and passion and the pastor begins to preach out truth. And then we see the parable of Matthew chapter 13 kick in. He starts to preach truth. God sends him people. Those people have to make their choices because God uses the church as a process to find out. So at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll never be able to go wham, wham to God that you didn't have a shot at it. The church should give you every shot that you need. It should be open to anybody who wants to get where they want to go. No holes barred. Anybody can come in, start, get a clean slate, and move on from there. That's the way God intended it to be. And in that process, you're going to find uh, you're going to find that the pastor gets up and he starts to preach the truth of the Word of God. And then Matthew chapter 13 kicks in. Some of it falls on stony ground. Some of it falls on uh, on on and, and caught up with the weeds. Some of it gets picked up by the devil. But some of it, some of it, some of it falls on good ground. Everybody gets a chance. And that's why I tell you another great principle in ministry is never take it personal. Never take it personal when somebody doesn't want to come to your church anymore. As long as you've done what's right and you preach the truth, don't worry about it. Because that's what the church is for. The church is, is a clearinghouse. The church is a place where when you understand it, my job is to put out the truth of the seed. You have to deal with it however you're going to deal with it. I don't care about those that leave. I'm just looking at the ones where it falls on good ground. You're never going to build anything with them. That's why I tell you, I, I give you a little example. If, sometime when you get alone and you got some time to think it through, stop and think about this. How about if you were the pastor of any church? How about if you were the pastor and you had to rely on people like you to build a church? That's a good one. He preaches the word. Some say, absolutely, this is what I've been looking for. Some of them say, no thanks. Some make it a while and then when the accountability factor gets too high, they bail out. Some go all the way and believe a vital, become a vital part of what God originally called a one man to do, and they build a ministry together called a church. If the pastor's smart, he'll burn himself out in his life there and make sure that when he leaves, a strong church that can carry on the vision that God gave him. You know, all my life I have, I have thought, and I know there's many aspects to the ministry, and, I'm not, and I've taught you many, many, many different aspects about the ministry, but I guess if I was going to sum it all up, if there's one verse in the Bible that is really audibly my job as a pastor, it's found in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 23. And it's really the job of any pastor. But I look at it as my single most important job. Now, I know I do a lot of things. When I talk about the job of the pastor is to perfect the saints. The work of the, I know all of that. But at the end of the day, at the final analysis, the bottom lowest common denominator, this is my job, and I would say the job of any pastor. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 23. It simply says this, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well nigh to thy herds. Now that's the job of a pastor. The job of a pastor is to know his people. Now, if you stay in the ministry long enough, you'll learn how to do that. You don't have to come up and tell me you're out of fellowship with God if I've known you for any length of time. You don't have to come and say to me, Bob, I'm having a tough time. You know why? I already know you're having a tough time. You say, how do you know that? That's my job. You say, you have a crystal ball? No, I don't have a crystal ball. I got biblical principles. The Bible says... 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, If any man love God, the same is known of him. 
And to reverse that, if any man doesn't love God, the shame is known of him. It shows. We're a big nation that's against racial profiling. We'll, we'll, we'll strip search some 80-year-old grandmother going to Disney World, but we'll let some guy get on a plane with dynamite in his shorts. <laughs> Welcome to America. You know what they do down at the bomb squad, don't you, when they, want to, when they don't want to defuse a bomb and they just want to get rid of it? They just take it out in the desert someplace, scrap some C4 on it, and, and detonate it. I thought I'd have done with that guy that had the bomb in his shorts. I said, I ain't touching that. <laughs> but I'll show you how we're going to fix it. <clears throat> Kaboom. There's such a thing as Christian profiling. Because you see, whether you know it or not, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God took look inside you. And the Bible says the windows of your soul are your eyes. And you can look at your kids and you can look in their eyes and tell you they don't feel good. The sparkle's gone. You know how they want to make sure somebody's dead when they find a body? Unless you've been dead for a couple of weeks and they don't have to. He's dead. <laughs> Whoa, he's dead. You know, you, go, you know what they do? Look at your eyes. Why? Because the Bible says the eyes are the window of your soul. You see, when you, got, when you love God and you're on fire for God, your eyes sparkle like two diamonds. And when you don't, that, that dullness comes in. You're cal- you know, remember, you remember when God came to Cain right after he killed Abel? What did God ask him? Did he say, how you doing today? No, God saw at a glance there was something different, and that's why he asked Abel, or asked Cain, why has thy countenance fallen? You know what your countenance is? Your countenance is God inside you shining out. You can tell in a heartbeat. Because the Bible says, if any man love God, maybe you can't figure it out yet. You ever learn the ministry and learn ministry profiling. Ministry profiling. God's people who are right with God fit into a profile. When you go across the country or across the world someplace and you fly back to America, you go through immigrations. And you'll have a little line there you go through, and there'll be an immigration officer, and she takes your passport, or he takes your passport, and looks you up on the computer to make sure you're that. But you know what they're also looking for? They're looking for a certain profile. If you ever go overseas, chances are somebody will come up to you before you leave the United States, and they'll ask if you're carrying any more than $10,000 on you. Because, well, that was back then. I don't know what the limit is now. But you weren't allowed to take more than $10,000 worth of cash. And how would you say, well, I just tell them no. They don't listen to your answer. They watched what they've been trained as a profile. I don't know what to tell you. The job of a pastor is to be diligent and know the state of the flocks. How can I help you if I don't know where you're at? My job is to feed the sheep, keep them together, keep the wolves away, and care for the sick sheep. That's my job. That's my job. And sometimes you can't always feed them. I remember years ago, uh, I, I was a high school director, and I, I knew that I could not stay in that position because I wanted to invest in lives because when the high school kids got to a certain age, they went off the college. And I knew, so I told the pastor, I said, you know, the, the, the college and career guy, some of you even in my college and career class that were here, John and Pam were, and, and I don't, so, yeah, you, yeah, you were. 30 years, yeah. I, I didn't mean John and Pam, I meant John and, uh, what's your name again? Janine, John and Janine back here, yeah. 30-some years, hadn't it, huh? I don't, Chris, Janet, you, you came after, didn't you? Jimmy came after. Jimmy got saved at a Bible study. You were there. You were only 15, 12 years old that time. You were smoking in Marshall's Alley when I caught you over there that time, remember? 
Hey, if you ever want to know how, if everybody ever tells you what a mean person I am and how rotten I am and how terrible I am, just send them to Steve Brackeen. Steve understands mean. We used to beat him up, didn't we, Steve? Huh? I put, we used to put, we couldn't do it, you ever get away with it now. We'd throw kids through glass windows. We didn't care. We just, you know what? Anyway. I said, I want to, I said, I'm going to, I want the college class. And, uh, and, and the guy was really hesitant to give it to me because I was a really good high school class, but uh, it didn't have enough, in his mind, it didn't have enough finesse, enough, I wasn't college trained or anything, you know, so he hesitated. And I basically said, look, I either have one here or I have one someplace else. So he gave it to me. And the class was running about uh, 40 people. Now, keep in mind, when I left that position and went to the next position, I was running about 700. But, you know, we went through the river before we got to the promised land, trust me. And about, uh, I think it was probably maybe running 60. And in the first two or three weeks, I had it down to 40. Because the guy that preceded me was just a big marshmallow. He was a fun guy. And I, and I realized what I had. And I realized that I had, to, I had an opportunity. So I came at him, boy. I mean, I was listening to a tape that you gave me when I was up in Chicopee, Massachusetts this week. I, I scared it out. I, thought, I, I felt myself feeling bad for some of the things I was saying to those people. I would never say that now. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'll tell you what. I, but back then, you know, and, I, and I, I realized that if I ever wanted to get them going, I had to really get this thing flying. So I just let them have it. I mean, I just let them have it. And uh, one day I went down to my office, and, I, and it was on my door, one of the gals had put a little sign, wrote it, anonymous, of course. And I took it off there, and it says, Dear Brother Bob, we love you, and we're so glad you're here. But you need to feed the sheep. We need to be fed. Feed the sheep, Brother Bob. Feed the sheep. And I looked at that thing, probably up, threw it away. So the next morning I had a big blackboard behind my pulpit. Next Sunday when I went up, and I wrote, and everybody was there waiting to go, ready to start. I took my magic barker and I said, to whom it may concern, you cannot feed dead sheep. All you can do is skin them. All right, open your Bibles and let's go to town. You know what? You had to get them down someplace before you could get them up. I had to redefine them. See? I had to get them to a place in their life where they, where they saw who they were and the potential they had. And it's just that simple. In the military, you lead from the top down. The general tells the colonel, the colonel tells the major, the major tells the captain, the captain tells the lieutenants, the captain tells the lieutenants tells the sergeants, the sergeant tells the corporals, and they finally tell the privates. And in the ministry, it's the same way. It's the same way. And, you know, some of you really want to get, you really want to learn the Bible all right now. But the bottom line is you can't. In the military, they have something called time and grade. You know what time and grade means? It means for to get the grade, you have to spend the time in the military to understand what the military is all about so you can better have the grade when you get there. And that's the way it is in the ministry. It's time and grade. You have to come to the place where you understand. But, you know, in the Army, you know what you can do? It probably, if you just went in as a private, it'd probably take you five years to make sergeant, maybe six. But at the same time, you can go in, you can go to uh, NCO school, you can start taking other classes, and it'll accelerate you getting to the place where you become a sergeant. Well, it's the same thing here. It'll take you maybe six or seven years if you just dink around here, come and go. But if you let me put you into the NCO training, Bible Institute, basic Bible, put the things in your life that'll accelerate you getting there, you'll get there. But at the end of the day, it still takes some time. Still takes some time. Now, as a pastor... I know general to colonel, colonel to major, major to captain. In the ministry, a pastor should never get above the captain grade. And I'll tell you why that is. In the military, they have what they call uh, field grade. And uh, field grade is uh, the guys that still stay in the field. 
When you become a major, you don't stay in the field anymore. You get a cush job back at headquarters. You become a lieutenant colonel, you get a cush job back at division. You become a, 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 a colonel, full bird, you, uh, you, you command a division. You're out of the mud. You're out of, you're out of all the danger. You're basically back in the rear with the gears, we used to say, and you never really have any association with the troops. But a captain, a captain is the highest rank you can go to sleep with the guys, fight with the guys, eat the same food they eat, enjoy the same misery of the cold and the wet and all of the stuff that goes with it, with death tugging at your arm every day. You can't, as a pastor, ever get above field grade because the moment you do, you lose touch with your people just like a general does with his troops. You know what? General will go up there and he'll look at a battle map and he'll just see all those 10,000 guys. You know what they are? They're just pins on a map. They're 1st Corps, 2nd Corps, 3rd Division, 1st Battalion. He doesn't know them personally. He can put them around and get them butchered and killed, and he never thinks anything about it. If it comes a place where it's a great victory, he gets the medal, not them. And if it's a great defeat, he comes down and steps on the guys who are under him but not getting the job done. He's got a perfect job, see? But a captain can't do that. A captain has to look you in the eye and tell you to go out there and get killed. A captain has to spend the same time with you. He freezes like you do. He lives and eats the same food that you do. And in the ministry, you can always tell when a pastor gets above the captain grade. You know why? Quit living with his people. Quit living with his people. He lives in houses much better than they do. He gets a salary much better than the average one does. He comes to the place where he, 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 some of you have to sweat out house payments, car payments, gas payments. Every pastor ought to have to sweat them out too. I mean, he's no better than you are. What happens is when you get up to that point, if you're not careful, you live outside the suffering, see? You're always there like the generals for the photo ops with your arms around the truth. I think one of the stupidest pictures I ever saw in my life was the D-Day guys from the 101st Airborne when they're getting ready to jump into Normandy and they're all lined up there with their painted all blackened out and their parachutes on, getting ready to go on the plane, and there comes Eisenhower down the deal there, shaking their hands, saying, Good luck. Good luck. General, won't you come with me? You be my luck. He didn't go. He didn't go. They never go. Just like in the ministry. They're never where the action is. Never are. Now, we defined the church. We saw the structure of leadership. Now, the structure of authority. And uh, the structure of authority within the church is in three areas. You got a pastor who sometimes in the Bible is called a bishop. In fact, there's only one place in the Bible where he's called a pastor, uh, and that's Ephesians 4. Many times if you read your Bible and it talks about in Timothy a bishop, that's a pastor. You say, and we don't call pastors bishops today. Obviously, we don't want to be connected with the Roman Catholic Church who makes such a big deal about it. But in the Bible, a pastor is a bishop. And that's just the way that it is. Then you find, uh, you know, you find what the Bible calls elders. And we talked about it before. An elder is someone that uh, in the Bible, it's not an office, but it's a place of spiritual maturity. And you'll find those places in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And the Bible talks about the fact that he's to feed the flock, he's to take oversight, he's to have a ready mind, he's to prepare himself, uh, he's not to be a lord over God's people. And this is the thing that most pastors don't understand. Now, I understand and if you're ever going to be in ministry around here in any point of leadership, you better get this. And, and most of you do. I, I mean, all of you do. I don't know of anybody that doesn't. But the bottom line is this. I understand that this is my church from the aspect that God called me to start it. But I also understand that being the pastor of it, 
I'm a steward of it. I'm not in charge of it. My job is to be a good steward over this church. It's ultimately God's church. Now, he may have called me to be the pastor, and he may give me the vision for it and run it through me, but ultimately, my responsibility is not the Lord anything over you to be better than you. My responsibility is simply, ladies and gentlemen, simply to be a steward of this ministry. And a steward has to be faithful. My job that I'm going to give an account for is whether you liked it or not, whether it made you happy or not, when I stand in the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to have to give an account for the truth that I preached from this pulpit or every time we opened up the Bibles, was I a good steward of it? Did I understand where you were at? Were I there when you needed me? Did I call you on the phone when you were having tough times? Who cares if you turn around and stab me in the back with it later? The bottom line was, did I do my job? Was I a faithful steward? And if you're going to be a minister in this church and you're going to be a pastor in this church or an elder in this church or a deacon in this church, you better get one word burned into your brain. It's stewardship. Because we're stewards of this, folks. We're not in charge of anything. We're just making sure it gets done the Bible way. That's all we're doing. That's our job is to be a steward. And in a steward, we have to be found faithful. It's just that simple. And then he has, he has the deacons. And we'll find the deacons in Acts chapter 6, and they were seven men that they called out there, and they set apart from the aspect of, of, of the ministry because the ministry was getting so big. Keep in mind again now, the deacon is a New Testament office. The pastor or bishop is a New Testament office. But an elder is a spiritual position. Now, let me say this without confusing you to put it into some kind of perspective. All elders, if you ever make it to the position of elder in this church, we don't have any right now. If you ever get to the position of elder in this church, and all elders will be deacons that have continued to grow in the, through the help of this ministry, but all deacons are not necessarily elders, but can be or should be elders as they grow to that spiritual level. You see what I'm saying? In other words, there's only two offices, pastors and deacons. A pastor is an elder who has then been ordained uh, now becomes a bishop or a pastor. And that's the way the process works. A deacon is someone who gets set apart as a deacon and then grows through the spiritual aspect of being a vital part, male or female, uh, well, man and deacons, uh, being a vital part of the pastor's work. The women come into that. They're not deacons. They hold no office. But through their spiritual growth, they come to the point where they become part, a uh, vital part of, of the ministry. Now, what we're going to do here in just a moment, we're going to ordain Greg. And you're going to see something that I want you to understand. We're going to lay hands on Greg, not because he's got a broken leg, not because he has some disease that we're going to heal him of. Maybe he does, but we won't help him any today. What is the laying on of hands? Bible talks about it. When, they, when we ordain our deacons from Acts chapter 6, the Bible says when they pick those deacons, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 70 through 22, it talks about lay no hands on any man suddenly. And that simply means the laying on of hands, when you find it in the Bible, has to do with him being ordained, either a deacon or a pastor. And it's basically saying don't take a new Christian. Don't take a novice. Don't take somebody who hasn't been around ministry and don't ordain them because they don't have the time and grade that we talked about. And then you find over there in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Paul talking to Timothy. 
Then he says, attend to Timothy, uh, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Here's what laying on of hands does. This is all that it does. It's the model found in the New Testament. When the church brings somebody before them that has proven themselves, somebody that has been part of the ministry and grown up, now, Greg has not been a part of our church and such, but Greg knew about, Greg probably uh, has been through more of my material over the years than all of you have. In fact, he knew me long before I knew him. And God uses those situations. There's been many, many people in my life that I have met that way that knew me long before I met them that God had given them our material. I've met with Greg on many, many cases. Many times in churches, uh, they have, a, they have a, uh, an ordination grilling, so to speak, where they, they bring a guy in and all the tough guys in the church sit him in the in a center of a table and everybody asks him theological questions to try to find out if he really knows the Bible. You know, that's so stupid. Bottom line is that. Oh, that shows us how stupid you are when it comes to the Bible. You don't find anybody in the book of Acts or any place anywhere else in the Bible ever grilling anybody. Bottom line is this. For I put my hands on you, I'm going to know what you believe. I'm not going to have to ask you anything. I'm going to watch your life. I'm going to watch what you say. And I'm going to watch how you're doing the ministry. And I'll do it from that basis. I don't need to ask you anything. I know what he believes. And of course, uh, when we lay on hand somebody, there's nothing. We're not, you know what? I'm not going to go home and take a nap because I put out some of my spiritual energy into Greg and I'm about half full now and I got a, you know, like a blood transfusion. No, no. You're not going to see the deacons and the pastors wobble out of here because we're all empty now because we gave Greg all that he needed, you know, and we're done. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with that. Symbolically, what we're doing is this. And this is the model in the New Testament. Symbolically, what we're doing is this. We're laying on our hands before this congregation and outwardly saying that by the laying on of our hands as ordained deacons and ministers, that we are setting him apart for the ministry, that he has proven himself to this church, that God has called him to a viable working ministry, and we are standing behind him, and the putting on of our hands symbolizes the fact that we are separating him apart for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all that it means. So you, now you have a better understanding of how the inner structure works of the church, from the authority level to the structural level to the pastors, the deacons, the elders. And, and all of this needs to go into your, your syllabuses or your journals as far as you beginning to understand and break down the structure. Someday you're going to lead this church. Someday, when somebody else needs to be ordained, I won't be the one up here doing it. And you need to learn now uh, how this thing works on the inside from the biblical models. Thursday night, Tuesday night, uh, next uh, week for Bible Institute on Saturday, every opportunity we get, I point out the models in the Bible, and you ought to be writing them down uh, that you can work off of them, use them, I give you models for ministry. I give you models for your own personal life. And, of course, the thing about models is you always got to follow the directions. I was famous as a kid buying these model cars and model planes, but I was somebody who never used the directions. I'm the only guy who could get a P-40 fighter looking like a 57 Chevy. <laughs> got to follow the directions. Got to follow the directions. Greg, I'd like you to come up here at this point in time and... Uh, uh, come on up here, and I'd like to have all of our all of our ordained deacons and pastors just kind of line up here till we get Greg up here. A couple of guys, pull this. Zach, would you pull this over here? Get a couple of guys, pull that out of the way here till we 